Amen, amen. How about that, church, huh? Happy Easter, y'all, and so grateful. We're going to continue that spirit of worship right into the preaching of the Word of God. You all ready for that? And uh, we just continue. Everything we do is worship from the singing uh, to the uh, just heralding of the Word. We're here to worship Jesus today. Um, we have the great privilege of uh, sitting here in this room to celebrate Easter like uh, roughly 2,000 years after this event we're gathered here to celebrate. But uh, if I can, um, let's just go back to that very first Easter weekend and what it would have been like for the followers of Jesus and to try to imagine the, um, the emotional swing, that's an understatement, but the emotional swings that would have happened as the weekend progressed. Uh, Friday. Because there was, a, there was a Friday that came before the Sunday. And Friday was just marked with uh, suffering, unbelievable suffering. And if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, or if when The Passion of the Christ came out, you went to a movie theater and you watched it, just watching a crucifixion on a movie a screen um, brought... It made you sick to your stomach. It brought unbelievable emotion that washed over you. Now imagine being there as a follower of Jesus. And Friday was just suffering and somber, just the heavy darkness of it all. And then Saturday, and as hard and as painful as Friday would have been, um, Saturday would have driven us crazy just because of the silence. I mean, to, to think about having 12, 18, 24 hours to process what you just witnessed yesterday, to think about, okay, what does this mean for us now, especially that inner circle of disciples who had, they'd, they'd left fishing boats, they'd left livelihoods, they had left a family, and for the last three years they had followed this teacher, and all of a sudden they watched him die yesterday. And on Saturday they went behind locked doors, closed doors, and they just sat in the silence of it. But then Sunday came. And if Friday was suffering and if Saturday was silent, Sunday was a celebration. Amen. Because then this, this, this teacher, this, this Lord, this Savior they had followed, he had risen from the dead. And so today, uh, very simply, what we're going to try to do 2,000 years after this event is just two very simple things in this room here today. And the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to walk through the story of the resurrection because, folks, on Easter Sunday, it's enough to just open God's Word and walk through the resurrection story. No one's getting shot out of cannons today. No one's coming in on a zip line today. Let's just open God's word and talk. He rose from the dead. What do we need to add to that? My wife's right now going, tone it down, tone it down. 35 more minutes, tone it down. 
So part one, we're just going to walk through the resurrection story, but then we got to get to part two today because as, as, as much as the historical proof of a risen Savior will, will allow worship to well up in our hearts here today, we can't, we can't just walk out going, okay, that was a historical event. That was a historical event that intersects our life in an eternity-transforming way. How does the resurrection story have the power and have the opportunity this morning to change the heart of everyone sitting in this room because it does. And so um, just speak to these two parts and to now two uh, types of people sitting in the room. I, I want to speak to you if you're here today and um, you are, you're, you've never believed in Jesus. And uh, no doubt Easter Sunday um, um, comes around and maybe mom wants you here or grandma wants you here or you just find yourself like, hey, it's Easter and it just makes sense to kind of go to church on Easter, um, just straight up, right to you, no frills, no, no kind of uh, beating around the bush. The hope today is that as we read and study the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that today your unbelief in him would turn to belief, and that, the light, that, that Jesus would turn the lights of your heart on, and all of a sudden you would say, I believe Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again for my sin, and I want to follow him today. That's just straight up where we're going today. But now, uh, if you hear the point of today's message is to uh, believe in Jesus and receive life in his name, and maybe you're here and you've known Jesus for decades, you've known Jesus for years, you've known Jesus for months, you walked into this room this morning, and on this Easter, you were pumped to go to church because you know that you know Jesus Christ. Don't hear the purpose of the message to believe in Jesus and receive life in his name and go, okay, great, good job, Pastor. Now, let me just pray for those in the room who don't know Jesus. No, the rest Resurrection is the foundational bedrock of our faith. That every year Easter comes around. Pastor DJ said something to me this week that was so good. He said, what do you do uh, every time you started a new sports season? Uh, the team, you just got back to the fundamentals. You dribbled and you did passing drills. Easter weekend every year brings us back in an, a laser-focused way to the fundamental foundational truth of our faith that we follow a Savior who rose from the dead. And if you have uh, rooted your life and belief in that Savior at some point in the past, um, don't set today aside because today the Lord wants to stoke the fire of that belief, the roots of that belief in your heart in such a way that you're prepared for every day following this. And so today we're after this, that every heart in here would believe in Jesus and receive life in his name. John chapter 20 is where we'll be. If you have a word, uh, the word of God, get there. Uh, John is the fourth book into the Bible. If you need a Bible under a seat somewhere nearby you, you will find a Bible and turn to the book of John chapter 20 as we walk through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pray with me as we get there. And let's ask God to meet us here in power. Father, thank you that you died for our sin. Uh, you took our place on the cross. You were buried. Silence set in and it looked hopeless. And then you rose again as our living hope. All of our faith rests on the foundational truth that you have risen from the grave. And so, God, now I pray as we walk through a chapter of your word that unpacks your resurrection before us, would your Holy Spirit do a powerful work in your heart, in our hearts, as 
uh, your word goes out. God, would you meet us here in power today? Would you speak to us in power? Would the celebration continue for the fact that you are risen? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still what? Well, it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, the writer of this gospel, is how he always refers to himself in his gospel. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So just stop right there and if you can imagine, as we talked about the emotional swing of this weekend. Mary, we know because we're told, was at the scene of the crucifixion. She was standing down there watching it. Uh, The next day, Saturday, was Sabbath, and it was a day of silence, and it was a day of rest. But as soon as Sabbath was over, and as a Sunday set in, Mary is up, it says, while, while it was still dark, and she's making her way to the tomb. And in the midst of the darkness, as she gets close to the tomb, she sees a sight she shouldn't have seen. She approaches the tomb, and the tomb looks different than they had left it. When you placed a body in the tomb, you rolled the stone over the entrance. The stone was sealed. And as Mary came close enough to make out what she was seeing in the darkness, she saw that the stone had been rolled away. And that's all she needed to see. Upon seeing that, she turns and she runs and she tells Peter and she tells John what she has seen. Now I want you to look back at verse 2. Because we have the privilege of thousands of years later of knowing how the story ended. Mary, Peter, and John have absolutely no clue what's going on right here. In fact, look at what she said. She runs up to them, and in verse 2, she says, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. The first thought on Mary's brain isn't bodily resurrection. The first thought on Mary's brain is bodily theft. Someone robbed the grave. Someone stole the body. Now, in our culture, in our day, we don't hear a ton about grave robbery. But in this culture, in this day, um, it was actually a very common thing. In fact, 10 to 20 years after Jesus was laid in this tomb, uh, there was an emperor, Emperor Claudius, who would issue a law that anyone caught robbing graves would be put to death. Apparently, this was such an issue that there had to be a law that would um, uh, cast the death penalty on someone caught for robbing graves. And Jesus, no doubt, uh, a known figure and all of the... um, polarizing nature surrounding his life, the first thought on Mary's brain isn't, he's risen from the dead. The first thought on her her and everyone's brain is, who stole the body? So she comes with this news. And what do Peter and John do with this? Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, 
But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Don't you love that? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just going to put this in here. I mean, we were running and a little faster than Peter. Got there first. What, what, is, what is up with this? If the writers of Scripture are writing under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is this a humble brag on John's part here? Like, I don't, I don't think so. I actually think um, what we're finding and what we're going to continue to find is this. I want us to watch as we read the account in the Gospel of John, and I want you even this week to go back and look at the account of the resurrection in all the other Gospels. And I want you to notice the meticulous detail in which every part of it is described. If the writers of Scripture are writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit knows that the, uh, the faith of Jesus' followers sitting in this room thousands and thousands of years later would rest on the uh, account, the eyewitness account of the resurrection, don't you think the Holy Spirit would guide the writers to write in meticulous detail about how this all went down? And so I think, you know, I, don't, I think this is more than a humble brag on John's part. Yeah, I beat him. Um, we're going to see. We took off running, and then I got there first. And though he got there first, he's not going to be the first one in. And we're going to see what happens. And here's what we saw, and here's what we did. And back to verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And, and now picture this. Stooping to look in, he sees something. He saw, what's he see? What's it say? He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Uh, so uh, most of us are probably uh, familiar with the type of tomb Jesus was laid in. We're used to in our culture kind of uh, ground, um, you know, burial type of ceremonies. Uh, Jesus was laid in a cave tomb. And so um, uh, you, would, you would kind of, um, you would hewn out uh, into the rock a place for you to one day be buried. Can you imagine that? Hey, babe, where are you going? I'm going to go keep working on my tomb. If you were rich enough, someone else would do this for you. If you could afford it, you might buy it. But John gets to this cave tomb, and it says he gets there, and he stoops down, and he looks in, and he sees that there's, 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 there's linen cloths lying there in the tomb. And I, I know what you're thinking. Ancient burial cloths look remarkably similar to modern-day bedsheets. Um, and, and there's these, linen, there's these lin, linen cloths lying there that, that, that John sees, um, but it says he doesn't go in. And, uh, like, bro, I'm with John on this, Right? Pry not rushing right into a tomb. What's, what's Peter do? Then Simon Peter came, verse 6, following him, and uh, went into the tomb. He saw, here's the second mention, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and then even more detail. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by 
itself. And so uh, in one of these tombs, typically what you would have found is um, kind of hewn out in the tomb would have been a rock bench. And on this bench is where the body was laid. And so on this bench would have been laying the grave cloths that Jesus' body had been wrapped in and probably collapsed underneath the weight of all the spices. In fact, in the, the chapter before this, it tells us they brought 75 pounds of like spices and ointment that they would have anointed these linen cloths with as they buried the Lord. And it says uh, under, you have these laying here, and then it notes the, the face cloth. And uh, it says the face cloth was, was folded up and, and kind of set off, set off in a place all by itself. Why such detailed mention of the clothes that wrapped Jesus' body? I think uh, so much detailed mention because uh, Peter and John are going, this isn't the normal scene of a grave theft. Like, what grave robbers come in and first unwrap the body from, uh, that would have been meticulously wrapped in linen cloths and covered with 75 pounds of spices? And what grave robbers would have been so polite to nicely fold up the face cloth and set it there to the side? I think we are beginning to see, especially John, and we're going to be told what John does here, is going, this, this ain't a grave robbery. Something else is going on here. And look at, look at John's response to this, verse 8. Then the other disciples, so Peter's in there, John's still standing outside. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and what? And he saw and he believed. That little phrase at the end of this verse is the running theme of John's account of the resurrection. We're going to continue to see this theme. And then they saw and they believed. They saw and they believed. They saw and they believed. All of the other people who are going to believe in Jesus in this passage will believe because they will see him resurrected. John walks into the tomb and goes, this ain't a grave robbery. I smell Jesus all over this. And he saw the empty tomb. He saw the body no longer laying there. And it says, some miracle happened in his heart. Faith. He believed. Now, what do you do when you just came up to your Lord's tomb that you saw him laid in just a matter of days before and you saw the stone rolled over and it's sealed and now you've come to the tomb and you've seen the stone rolled back, you've seen the grave cloths laying there and there's nobody in the tomb. What do you do in that moment? Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. What? Like we're expecting something so climactic at this moment. And verse 10 comes, and then the disciples uh, went home. What is up with this? Well, what do, you, what do you do? What do you do when you come upon an empty tomb? What, what are they supposed to do? Uh, we, we only have three options here. Uh, option A, um, you believe that he resurrected from the dead. And we're told, we're told John is kind of there. 
We aren't told where Peter's at. Mary, we're going to find out, she still definitely thinks this thing was a grave robbery. And so what do you do? We're not told that John begins to immediately witness to what, uh, what faith has taken root in his heart. And can you blame him? Hey, guys, I know what happened. He rose from the dead. Uh, uh, option B is you go tell the authorities. Uh, they're the ones who just had the, your master killed. You're probably not rushing right off to them. Option C, you form a search party and you begin to look for the body that you believe has been taken and dumped somewhere. Um, again, they're behind lock and key at this point because they're terrified of what the authorities will do to them. They're not bringing any more attention to themselves than that. And so they see the empty tomb. They're at a loss of what do we do now? And they go home. So Peter and John have come. They've seen the empty tomb uh, at the announcement of Mary who found it first. Peter and John are now back home. What What does Mary do? Where is she? Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Same picture that we had of John. And uh, now it tells us what Mary sees. We, we expect that Mary's going to stoop and look into the tomb. And she's gonna, it's, it's going to say she saw the burial cloths lying there and the face cloth neatly rolled up or folded up sitting along the side there. And that's not at all what she sees. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? They know the answer. Why do they ask? We're not told. I think just a loving, gentle prodding to go, do you remember? Do you remember? He talked about this. He talked about this. Destroy this temple and three days later I'll raise again. No sign will be given this generation except the sign of Jonah. Woman, why are you weeping? And she tells them, Middle of 13, she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Tomb's been robbed. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Now imagine this. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Now how, how is that? You have these resurrection accounts where Jesus is seen by his followers and, and sometimes it's like Jesus is in the room and they're all like, what? And other times like you have here, like uh, Mary is looking into the tomb. She's just interacted with two angels. She turns around. It says she sees Jesus, but she does not know that it was Jesus. Why not? Um, uh, remember what verse 1 said. Went there while it was still dark. We don't know how much time has elapsed since that time. There's just, is the sun just coming up and the shadows of light are filling this area? Uh, do you remember what uh, the verse just before this said? She was weeping. Have you ever been weeping and driving at the same time? And turning the windshield wipers on and like it's not doing anything? Like I need windshield wipers for my eyes? Uh, she turns around and there's nothing, the power of the brain, right? There's nothing in Mary's brain that would expect to turn around and see Jesus here. Who watches uh, 
Who, when you have a free moment on YouTube, will watch military homecomings? Anyone? No? Just come on. Whose eyes have a tendency to sweat while you do that, right? There's always two parts to a military homecoming. Uh, The first part represented by this on your left. It's that moment where the person sees. And there's usually not an immediate, there's kind of this like, my brain has to catch up to what my eyes are looking at right now. And then the jaw usually drops. And that leads to part two, the awesome, joy-filled celebration. Like, as Mary turns around here, she, there's nothing in her brain that would expect to see Jesus. And I'm going to argue that as the text continues to go, I think she just turned, talked, and is looking back at the tomb very quickly, and I'll show us why. Having said this, she turned around, she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, same question, why are you weeping? And then he adds to it. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Isn't that great? Like the risen Lord of the globe. She's like, I'm talking to the gardener. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, basically, were you in on this? Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, before we get to verse 16, understand that coming in verse 16 is the complete tone shift of the entire passage. Like if there, if there was a soundtrack, if I could play the piano, I can't, so I'll spare you. If there was a soundtrack behind verses 1 through 15, it would be heavy, it would be sad, it would be dark, and it would be gloomy. And then verse 16, and you, you, would, you would hear it pick up and you would hear the hope infused just in the soundtrack that would be behind this now because in verse 16, look at what happened. She goes, hey, 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 if you're the gardener and you had something to do this, where's the body? I'll go get it. I'll put him back here. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Just at the sound of him speaking her name, she knows. This ain't the gardener. This is my Lord. What a powerful example here of when Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. At the sound of her name, she goes, Rabboni, teacher. Which means teacher. Jesus said to her, he now gives her some instruction. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Can you imagine when she realized this, which physically, what the posture of this, is she, we're not told, is she at his feet, clinging to his feet, crying out, teacher, teacher, Lord, Lord, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, verse 18 there. Um, What did did that announcement journey look like? He says, go and tell tell my brothers that I'm alive, that you've seen me. And it says, uh, Mary went... 
and uh, told the disciples. Now, do you think after a moment like this, this is a, this is a nice little jaunt, nice little jog, with just, you know, a calm, calm knock on the door. My brothers, <laughs> I have spotted the risen Lord. No way. Mary channels her Jackie Joyner cursey here. Everyone under the age of 25 is like, what, who? She, she is on an all-out sprint, busting through the door, going, he is alive, y'all. And she announces this. Now, okay, hold on. Um, and then everyone believed it, and everyone lived happily ever after. Come on. If you're a disciple in that room, and here comes Mary all by herself, busting through the door. He's alive. I saw him. I talked to him. I was clinging to him. Um, let's get Mary in a chair. <laughs> let's get her a glass of water. It's been a rough 36 hours. I would, I would probably need some fact-checking of that. I'd probably need something more than that. Enter something more. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which by the way, you haven't missed any bullet points yet, okay? They're getting there on your notes. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Shalom. Peace be with you. You're hanging out as a group of friends. You're in this house. The door's locked because you're terrified of what the authorities might do to you next. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. Shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Our, our English can't even do that sentence justice right there. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. No, if you've got an NLT or an NIV or in front of you, that gets a little better at it. Then the disciples were filled to the brim with joy. Then the disciples were overflowing with joy when they saw him. Back to the military homecoming type thing. Jaw dropped, run to embrace. Then the disciples are filled with joy when they see Jesus. Here's verse 21. Jesus said to them again, again, shalom. This is much more than the customary greeting here. Shalom. Cue disciples freaking out. Again, shalom. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus' shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross for the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Shalom. Peace be with you. And then he says some things that need to be unpacked in another sermon than today. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, 
Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Come on, doubting Thomas. You don't believe your friends? You don't believe Mary? All of these guys are saying, we were in the house the other night, and I'm telling you, Jesus came. We saw him, we saw his hands, we put our hand in his side, and Thomas is going, you all are nuts. You've lost it. I won't believe unless I can have that same experience too. Thomas makes a bold claim at the end of this. End of verse 25. I, unless I can put my finger through the holes and put my hand in, I will never believe. And I just wonder if um, there's some who've walked into the room here today who have made such a resolution in your own heart to go, I'll never believe. Like, my family is They are whack for believing this stuff. I will never believe. How does Jesus interact with someone who has made such a strong statement of, unless this happens, I won't ever believe? Let's look at the tender love of how Jesus interacts with this. Verse 28, or verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, here it is again, shalom, peace be with you. Then he looks right at Thomas. Okay, so you imagine you're Thomas, right? You're you're there, you know, the 11 of you are all there together. Jesus walks in. The other 10, they go, see, he did it again. And Jesus looks right into his eyes. And hear this now, if you've ever made such a resolution in your own heart, I won't ever believe this this stuff. Today might be the very day Jesus Christ is making a beeline for your heart to go, "Let let me turn the lights on to your heart, let me show myself to you in a way you can't possibly deny. Then he said to Thomas, verse 27, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And I would just say that in this room this morning, if God is speaking directly to the hearts of some who have maybe you've persisted in unbelief about Jesus for years, or maybe you walked into church this Easter and you've never believed in Jesus, hear the words of Jesus to your own heart today. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And he goes on to say something. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Belief takes root in his heart. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Jesus looks at us and says, blessed are you in this room, having not seen, having not stood in this room, having not physically put your finger in the holes of his hands, having not physically put your hand in the gash on his side. He goes, blessed are those who having not seen yet have believed. Now we get to how does the resurrection story impact our lives. It starts with this. Every heart in here this morning, turn from your unbelief and believe in Jesus. There's nothing new about that. There's nothing novel about that. There's nothing flashy about that. It's what you expect to hear every Easter when you come to church, but it's what you need to hear this Easter. Don't just hear it with your ears. Let the Lord speak into your heart that this Easter might be the time you turn from the unbelief that you've persisted in about Jesus Christ and that this is the day that belief takes root in your heart and the eyes of your heart are open and you see Jesus for the glorious risen King that he is. And today, take, uh, faith takes root in your heart. Turn away from your unbelief about Jesus and turn towards belief, but it's, we got to ask the question, what are you believing? What are you believing? It's easy for the pastor to stand up there and say, believe. Believe what? What are you believing? Here's what you're believing. You're believing that there's a sin-sized canyon between you and God. That there's a sin-sized chasm between you and the Lord. And I say sin-sized because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and, and we're separated in relationship from our holy God. And yet you're believing this, that God has lavished His gracious love on us. That, that he's seen the canyon, he's seen the gap, he's seen the divide, he's seen the chasm created by my sin and by your sin, and he's looked down on that canyon, and he has lavished his gracious love on us. In what way? God's love has been displayed, it's been shown, it's been evident in the death and the burial and the resurrection of King Jesus. And when King Jesus died and was buried, uh, he died for the penalty of our sin. And then when he rose to life, he created a bridge across the canyon. He made a way back to harmony with God. He made a way back to relationship. And you're believing that the only way to cross the divide caused by sin is to take the bridge of Jesus Christ and believe in his name today. You're believing today that the way we come to experience and know the relational rightness with God is through belief in Jesus Christ. You're believing today in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. Now what happens when we believe? Keep reading, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And that by believing, you finish this sentence with me, that by believing, 
you may have life in his name. Turn from your unbelief today and believe in Jesus to receive life in his name. Now, again, another question you need to ask. What do you mean receive life in his name? I'm alive. I have a pulse. My heart is beating. You're telling me to turn uh, from not believing in Jesus to believe in Jesus, to be saved from my sin, and then I'll experience life in his name. You're like, I'm already alive. That is true. Every one of us in this room are physically alive, but the reality of the matter is this. Every one of us in here has a soul. And though we can be physically alive this Easter, we can be spiritually dead on the inside. Our soul is still at death. What happens the moment belief takes root in your heart? The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, your soul is given life. You are born again. You are alive on the inside. You have spiritual life. You begin to live what Jesus talks about, a John 10 kind of life. I have come that they may have life and life abundant, life to the full, life overflowing. This is the life offered to us in Jesus Christ. And so, um, just a question to leave you with this Easter. Has the canyon between you and God been bridged through belief in Jesus Christ? Can you point to a time in your life where you've said, I surrender, I give up, I believe. Jesus, save me from our sin. Has that canyon, that sin-sized canyon, ever been bridged through you believing in Jesus Christ? Or, 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 or are you trying to get right with God another way? Are you trying to work hard enough, to be good enough, to stand on one side of the canyon and try to make the moral long jump to the other in your own strength? Are you trying to work hard enough to be good enough to build your own bridge across? See, God, look, look, God, I'm doing good things. Look, God, look, God, look, God, I'm building my bridge towards you. Um, We're hopeless at the moral long jump, trying to get up to the other side and get right with God. We're hopeless in building our own bridge there. Jesus Christ, out of love for us, has built the bridge. Will you believe in his name today and receive the life offered by God towards you? Salvation comes through Christ alone. Today, believe and take the bridge. And for those of you who know him this Easter, um, Do you find your heart worshiping and rejoicing in the one who has bridged this chasm for you? Are you rejoicing this Easter that you no longer are standing hopelessly on this side, trying to figure out how to get right with God on that side? Are you rejoicing this Easter in a risen, redeeming, sin-chasm-crushing Christ? who we've gathered here to celebrate this morning and every Sunday we gather. Are you glorying in this conquering Savior 
who died and who was buried and who rose again to secure your salvation the moment you believe. This church, stand to your feet. This is our Easter King. This is our conquering Savior. This is the name above all names. This is our Jesus. The sin-crushing, veil-tearing, death-defying, life-giving, kingdom-creating, unrivaled, risen King. And His name is Jesus. And we're here today because he's alive and we'll be back here next Sunday because he's still alive and we'll do it forever and ever until he comes back for us or we go see him face to face. Our king is alive. Would you believe in Jesus today if you never have? And would you receive the life in his name? Unbeliever, believe. Believer, revel today in your belief. Church, happy Easter. Let's worship the King.